This is a time of transformation. As old ways fall, men are called to rise, to heal our lives, grow strong, and transcend our limitations. In tribes around the world, drawing on the best of masculinity from all of time, a new day is beginning. This is the Renaissance of men. You are the Renaissance. Hello, my name is Will Spencer, and you're listening to Poetry for Men, part of the Renaissance of Men podcast. One of the coolest things about doing these poetry episodes is the way the poems seem to fit together thematically well outside of my conscious planning. For example, one of my favorite episodes of this series was Galway Kinnell's Last Gods, which told the metaphysical story of two lovers in a sort of Garden of Eden. The previous episode to this one was Andrew Marvell's To His Coy Mistress, another poem about two lovers, where the poet makes a compelling metaphysical argument about why they should get it on. And this week, we have yet another poem that approaches similar subjects from a different angle, and which, while it wasn't intentional, I felt was the perfect episode for Valentine's Day. This is also a poem I have a personal connection to. I memorized it for a poetry class I took in college. The instructor of that class was a man named Christian Wyman, who just published his acclaimed first book of poetry, The Long Home. Christian Wyman later went on to become the editor of Poetry Magazine for a decade. And the book I'm reading this from, The Norton Anthology of Poetry, is the same five-pound dog-eared copy I bought for his class more than 20 years ago. This is also the most difficult poem I've read so far. First, it's the longest poem, clocking in at 76 lines. It also features the most unfamiliar vocabulary. And finally, philosophically, it has some of the most abstract concepts to discuss. So this is an ambitious piece. It will require as much concentrated attention as you can spare. It's required a lot from me, but as I hope you'll see, it was worth it. And if anyone knows Christian Wyman, drop him a line for me. See if he'd like to come on my podcast. It'd be nice to talk to him again. So, onward. Along with Andrew Marvell and George Herbert, we're remaining in 16th century England with the metaphysical poets and their foremost representative, John Donne. Since in the previous two episodes, we've already covered most of the history around this era, namely the Reformation, Interregnum, and Restoration, it won't be necessary to go over it again, which leaves a bit more space to talk about the work. But first, about John Donne himself. He was born in 1572, the son of Catholic parents, at a time when practicing that religion was illegal following Henry VIII's split from Rome. Donne's father was a wealthy merchant, but unfortunately he passed away when John was only four. His mother remarried, and so John was raised by his stepfather. John matriculated at both Oxford and Cambridge, as it seems all great poets do. But interestingly, he was unable to receive a degree from either university because, as a Catholic, he couldn't swear the oath of allegiance to the Protestant queen, Elizabeth. And while that may sound extreme, to give you some idea of how seriously the Queen of England took her Anglicanism, John's brother Henry was arrested and imprisoned in 1593 for harboring a Catholic priest. Sadly, Henry later died in prison of bubonic plague, and that priest's name was William Harrington. For his crime of Catholicism, according to Wikipedia, he was tortured on the rack, hanged until not quite dead, then disemboweled before being beheaded. All for his faith. William Harrington was beatified in 1929 by Pope Pius XI, 
and is venerated as one of the martyrs of England. Back in the 16th century, following his departure from Cambridge, John Donne traveled overseas in Spain and Italy and fought alongside the Earl of Essex and Sir Walter Raleigh against the Spanish Armada at the Battle of Cadiz and in the Azores. When he returned to England in 1599, he was prepared for a career as a diplomat. He was appointed Chief Secretary to the Lord Keeper of the Great Seal, Sir Thomas Egerton, and was established at Egerton's London home, close to the Palace of Whitehall, then the most influential social center in England. During his time there, Dunn lived like a friend in the Egerton household, where Sir Thomas appointed him, quote, a place at his own table, to which he esteemed Dunn's company and discourse to be a great ornament. Dunn's contemporary Richard Baker wrote of him at this time as, quote, not careless, but very neat, a great visitor of ladies, a great frequenter of plays, a great writer of conceited verses. It seemed that John was on top of the world with Sir Thomas and on his way to a very bright future. But while in Sir Thomas' household, John met Egerton's niece Anne, then 17. And this is where things began to go very wrong. John and Anne fell in love, but knowing they wouldn't receive a blessing from Sir Thomas or Anne's father, George, they married in secret with the help of John's friends around Christmas in 1601. Unfortunately, when John wrote to his new father-in-law months later, things didn't turn out as hoped. Anne's father, Sir George Moore, was furious and had John fired from his post and put in the infamous Fleet Prison, along with the officiating priest and even the man who acted as the witness to the wedding. And while all three were later released, the scandal ruined John's career. He was fired from his post with Sir Thomas, dashing his hopes for public service and leaving him at age 30 in 1602 with neither prospects for employment nor the funds to support his household. The next 10 years of his life with Anne were spent in humiliating dependence on both Anne's family and noble patrons of his work. He tried and failed to secure regular work while his family grew. Anne bore 12 children, five of whom died before maturity. John wrote of his wife at the time, quote, Because I have transplanted her into a wretched fortune, I must labor to disguise that from her by all such honest devices as giving her my company and discourse. And about himself, he said, quote, To be part of no body is as nothing, and so I am. I am rather a sickness or a disease of the world than any part of it, and therefore neither love it nor life. Despite his obvious despair, John kept working, composing prose works on theology, law, and anti-Catholic polemics, along with love lyrics, religious poetry, and funerary verse for his patrons. Like a good man, he made it work, but barely. His final attempt to achieve a post as a diplomat at court failed in 1615, when he was rejected by King James I himself, as in the King James Bible, for anything outside the church. So Dunn was ordained that same year, but tragedy wasn't done with him yet. Two years later, his wife Anne died after giving birth to a stillborn child. Following that event, John both raised his remaining children on a modest income and threw himself into his Anglican priesthood. The power and eloquence of the sermons that followed secured him a reputation as a foremost preacher of England in his day and a favorite of both King James I and Charles I. Finally, in 1631, he was stricken with stomach cancer, but he left his deathbed to preach one final sermon before King Charles I. The sermon became known as Death's Duel because it seemed to all those who were in attendance that John was delivering his own funeral sermon. He died less than two months later, on March 31, 1631, at age 59, 
and the bulk of his poetry was only published posthumously. Of course, I knew none of this when I memorized the poem back in college. I only knew the words and the work. But now knowing what I do about Dunn and his love for his wife Anne, the poem takes on a new poignancy. What could so motivate a man to risk everything, lose, and continue on? Only one thing. Love. But not just any love. Probably not even the kind of love we're used to feeling, or at least not in the way we're used to feeling it. For a poet of John Donne's exquisite sensitivity would detect subtle eddies and currents that would slip by most of our conscious noticing, again like flavors in a glass of wine or notes in a fragrance. Knowing that, then, perhaps we're ready to gaze into the heart of one man's love for his beloved, and in the process, maybe as men, we can look into our own. This is The Ecstasy by John Donne. Where, like a pillow on a bed, a pregnant bank swelled up to rest, the violet's reclining head, sat we two, one another's best. Our hands were firmly cemented with a fast bomb which then stood spring. Our eye-beams twisted and did thread our eyes upon one double string. So to intergraft our hands as yet was all the means to make us one, and pictures in our eyes to get was all our propagation. As twixt two equal armies fate suspends uncertain victory, our souls, which to advance their state were gone out, hung twixt her and me. And whilst our souls negotiate there, we like sepulchral statues lay, all day the same our postures were, and we said nothing all the day. If any so by love refined that he soul's language understood, and by good love were grown all mind within convenient distance stood, he, though he knew not which soul spake, because both meant, both spake the same, might thence a new concoction take, and part far purer than he came. This ecstasy doth unperplex, we said, and tell us what we love. We see by this it was not sex, we see we saw not what did move. But as all several souls contain mixture of things they know not what, love these mixed souls doth mix again, and makes both one, each this and that. A single violet transplant, the strength, the color, and the size, all which before was poor and scant, redoubles still and multiplies. When love with one another so interanimates two souls, that abler soul which then stoth flow defects of loneliness controls. We then who are this new soul know of what we are composed and made, for the atomies of which we grow are souls whom no change can invade. But oh, alas, so long, so far. Our bodies, why do we forbear? They're ours, though they're not we. We are the intelligences, they the spheres. We owe them thanks, because they thus did us to us at first convey, yielded their senses force to us, nor are dross to us, but allay. On man heaven's influence works not so, but that it first imprints the air, so soul into the soul may flow, though it to body first repair. As our blood labors to beget spirits, as like souls as it can, because such fingers need to knit that subtle knot which makes us man. So must pure lovers' souls descend to affections and to faculties, which sense may reach and apprehend, else a great prince in prison lies. To our bodies turn we then, that so weak men on love revealed may look. Love's mysteries and souls do grow, but yet the body is his book. And if some lover such as we have heard this dialogue of one, let him still mark us, he shall see small change when we're to bodies gone.
I recognize that's a lot, verbally, grammatically, and philosophically. So we're going to take it slow. Also, pro tip, if you ever really want to get a poem, read it out loud, because there's something magical about hearing a poem versus reading it. These lines started making much more sense to me when I read them out loud versus all the times I'd read them on the page. So, there's a couple important things to note. First, the title, the ecstasy. While we have sensory connotations with that word, the note in the Norton Anthology reads, quote, The ecstasy means literally a standing out, a term used by religious mystics to describe the experience in which the soul seemed to leave the body and rise superior to it in a state of heightened awareness. That sounds pretty appropriate. Also, there's this recurring image of the violet in lines 3 and 36. The note here says that the violet is a symbol of faithful love and truth. Finally, it's worth noting that though John Donne was born a Catholic and later became an Anglican priest, this poem is full of some very vivid occult symbolism, with several references to astrology and alchemy. You may also be surprised to learn that despite occultism's negative connotations today, many famous figures of history, including Donne's contemporary Sir Isaac Newton, Galileo, and Leonardo da Vinci, were also interested in the Western occult traditions. And one of history's most famous occultists, John Dee, lived in and around London at the same time as John Donne. Dee was the court astrologer for Queen Elizabeth I. He also advocated for founding colonies in the New World and is credited with coining the term the British Empire. Is it possible that one of the most famous underground metaphysical poets of the era might have crossed paths with an occultist? An interesting subject to research for those so inclined. Okay, onward into the poem. By my reading, there are three separate topical sections that will help us lay out what Dunn is attempting to communicate. From line 1 to around line 36, Dunn is describing the scene he's sharing with his beloved from his perspective and that of an imaginary observer. Then from line 37 until around line 56, he makes metaphysical observations about the nature of two souls in love. And then from line 57 until just about the end of the poem, Dunn ruminates about how and why spiritual beings inhabit physical bodies and some of the processes that might be involved with that. So to get a picture of what's going on, imagine John lying beside his beloved, probably Anne, staring into her eyes, reflecting on the experience of the love that they feel, how there's at once a feeling that love transcends the body, but also how the body is a vital part of it. And the title of the poem, The Ecstasy, is meant to communicate this heightened state of awareness that he's in, where he can perceive these truths. It's a holistic vision. And surely every one of us as men can relate to a part of it. Before we get into the reading, I'd like to point out the meter, which is iambic quatrameter, the same breezy, open, brisk approach taken by Andrew Marvell. But what I want to draw your attention to is how effortlessly Dunn's dense concepts fit into this framework. This truly demonstrates his mastery of verse, that he's able to use such precise words to fit within a tight rhythmic space, but somehow the meter itself never feels like a restriction. The phrasing doesn't become awkward or strained. It rests very comfortably, which is what gives that poem that light, ecstatic feel. In fact, if I had to describe my sense of reading the poem, it actually feels like there's quite a bit of space to move around. A pretty remarkable accomplishment when you take into consideration that there's just 16 syllables per line. So, we'll go quatrain by quatrain, starting with the first descriptive section through line 36. Where, like a pillow on a bed, a pregnant bank swelled up to rest, the violet's reclining head, sat we two, one another's best. 
So there's the violet symbolism that would have let contemporary readers know that unlike Marvell's to his coy mistress, we're in more wholesome territory. And we can also picture the two lovers lying beside a river, probably in their finest clothes. Our hands were firmly cemented with a fast bomb which then stood spring. Our eye beams twisted and did thread our eyes upon one double string. They're holding hands, and the Norton note here says that the fast bomb is perspiration on their palms. And the notion of eye beams reflects the ancient thought that the eyes cast light outwards by which they were able to see things. So when we say, cast your gaze upon something, that's where that idea comes from. So these two lovers are casting their gaze upon each other, and their eye beams are intertwining like their hands. So to intergraft our hands as yet was all the means to make us one, and pictures in our eyes to get was all our propagation. Again, this is a not-so-subtle way of saying they're not having sex. Their held hands are the only way they're made one, and all the propagating that they're doing is the multiplication that's happening as each figure is doubled in the eyes of the other. It's actually very clever imagery, sort of saying, I know what you're thinking, and stop those dirty thoughts. As twixt two equal armies fate suspends uncertain victory, our souls, which to advance their state were gone out, hung twixt her and me. And this is where the title The Ecstasy comes from. In this state of hand-holding and eye-gazing, their souls had left their bodies to advance their spiritual evolution outside of time. I'd also like to note that Dunn says they're two equal armies. Much is made these days about how men have oppressed women through the ages. Dunn surely wasn't a perfect man, but there's zero indication in this poem that a man who was likely dashing, successful, and accomplished in both war and letters regarded his beloved as anything less than his equal. And whilst our souls negotiate there, we like sepulchral statues lay. All day the same our postures were, and we said nothing all the day. So, while their souls have gone out of their bodies doing the things that souls do, the two lovers simply laid there, still as burial statues, without speaking. Surely we've all been there, staring into our beloved's eyes, wanting to say both everything and nothing at all. My heart is skipping a beat just thinking about my own memories of times like that. If any so by love refined that he soul's language understood, and by good love were grown all mind, within convenient distance stood, he, though he knew not which soul spake, because both meant, both spake the same, might thence a new concoction take, and part far purer than he came. Essentially what he's saying is that if another sufficiently aware person were to see this and perceive what was going on, that person wouldn't be able to tell the difference between the two intermixed souls and would walk away feeling inspired at what he could perceive taking place between them. And the term concoction here would be interpreted in an alchemical sense, as when you mix two elements together and refine them via heating them. Now we head into the second section of the poem, wherein things begin to get a little more conceptual. This ecstasy doth unperplex, we said, and tell us what we love. We see by this it was not sex. We see we saw not what did move. So what does this mean? The key is in the last line. We see we saw not what did move. The ecstasy that the two lovers are experiencing is showing them that they weren't moved or motivated by what they thought they were. They have been unperplexed in seeing that it wasn't sex that was driving their passion, but something deeper. But as all several souls contain mixture of things they know not what, love these mixed souls doth mix again, and makes both one, each this and that. Again, he's using alchemical imagery. The souls are mixing on a purely spiritual basis and imparting pieces of themselves into each other. 
Don is going to great pains here to explain that where we typically interpret sex as the primary method by which humans bond and mix with each other, he's saying that it happens on an independent spiritual level. Remember, all these two lovers are doing is lying beside a riverbank, holding hands, and looking into each other's eyes. So he's saying the same thing over and over again in different ways, making a profound philosophical point about love. To bring some of the subtext into the vernacular, you can imagine him saying, You Philistines, two can become one without needing to express it bodily, you and your dirty minds. And then Andrew Marvell would heckle him from the back of the room. But regardless, I think you get the picture that John is an honorable, sensitive man. He is a poet, after all. A single violet transplant, the strength, the color, and the size, all which before was poor and scant, redoubles still and multiplies. And here again he uses the image of the violet, symbolizing faithful love and truth, to illustrate that the intensity of their spiritual union can bring the very flower to life. What is happening between them is the essence of what is symbolized by the violet. So men, if you're listening and you haven't picked up flowers for your beloved yet today, maybe see about adding in some violets to your red roses and you can explain to your woman what they mean. Think of that one as a gift from your buddy Will. Okay, now pay attention. We're going to head firmly into conceptual territory, right into the eye of the storm. When love with one another so interanimates two souls, that abler soul which then doth flow defects of loneliness controls. When two people are animated by their love for each other, a third soul is created, formed from the substance of both of them, and that strong soul flees from the controlling influence of loneliness. In other words, when we truly fall in love with someone, when we're separated from them, we don't just miss their presence, but the spirit of togetherness we share. Therefore, it's not our beloved as such who saves us from our loneliness, but the sense of belonging that we share with them that does. Take a moment to think about that, that we're spared from loneliness through relationship, not the mere sharing of space. We then, who are this new soul, know of what we are composed and made, for the atomies of which we grow are souls whom no change can invade. The two individuals become one, and know that their union isn't of the physical body, but of their souls, and unlike matter which is always decaying, the soul is eternal. The third being who is created between the two of them knows this. But oh, alas, so long, so far, our bodies, why do we forbear? They're ours, though they're not we. We are the intelligences, they the spheres. Now John begins to lament the limitations of the physical body. Surely this must be a feeling you know as well, if you've ever been in love. The desire to rip off this skin suit and merge with your beloved wholly in spirit. Merging through the body just isn't good enough. The flesh is in the way. The body is who we are, but it's also not who we are. We're the consciousness or intelligence behind the body, and the body is the space that consciousness manifests in. Again, remember, this poem is called The Ecstasy, demonstrating the higher thoughts John's having in this moment he's sharing with his beloved. He's really feeling it, as I think many of us have. But how many of us are quick enough to capture this lightning in a bottle and express it in such refined verse? Pretty remarkable, if you ask me. We owe them thanks because they thus did us to us at first convey, yielded their forces, sense to us, nor our dross to us, but allay. He's gone so far out of himself, out of the body, that he's felt the tug of his physical being back on earth and come to appreciate it as a vital part of existence. It's not dross or something worthless, but alloy or alloy, a metalworking process that combines two or more metallic elements for the strengthening of each. 
So while in the previous quatrain, he's feeling the sense of patience or forbearance of the burden of having a body, here he's recognizing that having a body makes us better than we would be if we were spirits alone. He also says that the body yields to the spirit in the form of welcoming in. These are profound metaphysical thoughts that I'd love to explore more in depth, but this isn't the space for it. And this line, because they thus did us to us at first convey, just incredible. To compress such a giant concept into such small, pithy words is the epitome of genius. And you can almost hear John smiling at himself for the skill of this construction. And it's the next three quatrains that are the most difficult. Dunn is beginning to leave the visceral experience of loving and being loved and is moving into more pure philosophical territory, which will account for a subtle shift in tone. On man, heaven's influence works not so, but that at first imprints the air, so soul into the soul may flow, though it to body first repair. The Norton note here is key. It says, quote, astrological influences were conceived of as being transmitted through the medium of the air. So again, John is scaling to the heights of metaphysical thought. He's answering the question implied by the previous quatrain. If bodies yield themselves to souls, then where do souls come from? John's answer is that the influences of heaven pave the way for a specific soul to enter a specific body, or though it to body first repair. And only then, via the body, can the soul of one lover flow into another. Again, he's the foremost of the metaphysical poets. As our blood labors to beget, spirits as like souls as it can, because such fingers need to knit that subtle knot which makes us man. We're going even deeper here. The Norton note is once again helpful. It defines spirits as, quote, vapors believed to permeate the blood and to mediate between body and soul. So think of it this way. The soul flows into the body from a higher plane, or heaven's influence in the previous quatrain. The body then yields to the soul, as he said in the quatrain before that. But how exactly does that process happen? How does a soul, quote, drive a body? The answer is the vapors in the blood that mediate between the two. Think of it like an interface between matter and pure spirit. That's what he means when he says the fingers that knit the subtle knot that make us man. That's the final, subtle, binding piece that holds it all together. Or, I should say, holds us all together. Now, modern ears may hear this and laugh. Vapors? Alchemy? Astrology? Souls? Pshaw! I'm a sophisticated modern individual, and I trust the science, and I don't believe in any of that. Well, first remember, this is the leading metaphysical poet of all time in an ecstatic state. He will be seeing and experiencing things far beyond what we might call reason, science, or objective, quote, facts. But don't worry. John hears your voice too, and he has a retort. So must pure lovers' souls descend to affections and to faculties, which sense may reach and apprehend, else a great prince in prison lies. A couple key translations here. Norton defines affections as feelings and faculties as powers of the body. So now he's concluding his metaphysical speculations and saying that this is how the souls of two lovers descend from the heavens into their bodies and the earth. Our inner senses may perceive these workings with our intuition or inner eye, and that's where our true nobility exists, which we can liberate by our own sincere and courageous investigations into our invisible inner nature. And now John issues a challenge to men and I think probably skeptics in general. Notice how he said, a great prince in prison lies. Is he talking about men or humans? I think he's talking about men. To our bodies turn we then, 
that so weak men on love revealed may look. Love's mysteries and souls do grow, but yet the body is his book. He's saying that weak men look only to the body for the presence of love. On one hand, perhaps he's talking about men who are overly obsessed with sex, issuing a retort back to Andrew Marvell at the back of the room. But I can't help but read this as an accusation against materialist skeptics who go looking for the mysteries of love solely in physical manifestations without acknowledging that the mystery of love transcends the physical. And if there's one thing that I think all red-blooded humans can agree on, it's that if anything, love is indeed a transcendent mystery. If you meet a person, man or woman, who tries to explain to you that love is just about hormones, advertising, and our DNA's drive to propagate itself, as we often hear on Valentine's Day, well, in my opinion, that's probably a person who's not worth talking to. Yes, there are cynical people like that, people who insist that science provides every answer we need to lead a rich and fulfilling life, and suffice it to say, I disagree. And I'd like to enter into the record the words of John Donne, literary genius and poet extraordinaire who agrees with me, and who traveled far into the invisible realms without the aid of mushrooms or ayahuasca, simply the powers of his own brave inner knowing. Terence McKenna, eat your heart out. Now for the final quatrain. And if some lover such as we have heard this dialogue of one, let him still mark us, he shall see small change and we're to bodies gone. And here, John Donne makes a statement for the ages. If in the future someone reads this and sees with the eyes of love as he and his beloved do, that individual will perceive the timelessness of this experience, which will continue on long after the two lovers have died. That's how confident he is in his observations. Rather than being intoxicated and hallucinating, he's observed something transcendent and eternal. As I said in my interpretation of Longfellow's Psalm of Life, if you've ever been so good at something that you can watch yourself being brilliant while being brilliant, that's mastery. And here I think John Donne gives us a little masterful wink through the ages. So what are we to make of all this? We've covered a lot of ground, blasting off from a riverbank all the way to the center of our being. It's been quite a ride. I can tell you that based on my experiences with mysticism and spirituality, much of what Donne says jives with my own encounters. But what does it say about John Donne himself? Well, the big unanswered question of John's life is, what could motivate a man to risk it all, lose, and continue on? I think we've just experienced our answer. It's doubtful that John felt this way for more than one woman. And it's also doubtful that a mystical man who feels this powerfully would be able to simply let it go, regardless of what propriety and English society might say. So I think it's fair to say that this poem was written about Anne, the young lady who he fell in love with and lost everything for. Maybe this poem recounts an experience John wasn't fully prepared for, a glimpse of himself he wasn't ready to see, a living of his powers of intuition far beyond what he'd previously achieved. His and Anne's love gave him that. And yet their love was forbidden. How could he possibly be with her? How could he possibly let her go? He made his choice. He chose love. How could he not? And I can't think of a better poem to read on Valentine's Day than that. Thank you so much for listening all the way through this very special episode of Poetry for Men. I hope it's inspired and moved you as it did me. And to all you lovers out there listening, including a few of you I know, this is for you. Once again, this is The Ecstasy by John Donne.
where, like a pillow on a bed, a pregnant bank swelled up to rest the violet's reclining head, sat we two, one another's best. Our hands were firmly cemented with a fast balm which thence did spring, our eye beams twisted and did thread our eyes upon one double string. So to intergraft our hands as yet was all the means to make us one, and pictures in our eyes to get was all our propagation. As twixt two equal armies fate suspends uncertain victory, our souls which to advance their state were gone out, hung twixt her and me. And whilst our souls negotiate there, we like sepulchral statues lay. All day the same our postures were, and we said nothing all the day. If any so by love refined that he soul's language understood, and by good love were grown all mind within convenient distance stood, he, though he knew not which soul spake, because both meant, both spake the same, might thence a new concoction take, and part far purer than he came. This ecstasy doth unperplex, we said, and tell us what we love. We see by this it was not sex, we see we saw not what did move. But as all several souls contain mixture of things they know not what, love these mixed souls doth mix again, and makes both one, each this and that. A single violet transplant, the strength, the color, and the size, all which before was poor and scant, redoubles still and multiplies. When love with one another so interanimates two souls, that abler soul which thence doth flow defects of loneliness controls. We then who are this new soul know of what we are composed and made, for the atomies of which we grow are souls whom no change can invade. But oh, alas, so long, so far, our bodies, why do we forbear? They're ours, though they're not we. We are the intelligences, they the spheres. We owe them thanks because they thus did us to us at first convey, yielded their forces, sense to us, nor are dross to us, but allay. On man heaven's influence works not so, but that it first imprints the air. So soul into the soul may flow, though it to body first repair. As our blood labors to beget spirits, as like souls as it can, because such fingers need to knit that subtle knot which makes us man. So must pure lovers' souls descend to affections and to faculties, which sense may reach and apprehend, else a great prince in prison lies. To our bodies turn we then, that so weak man and love revealed may look. Love's mysteries and souls do grow, but yet the body is his book. And if some lover such as we have heard this dialogue of one, let him still mark us, he shall see small change when we're to bodies gone. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Renaissance of Men podcast. Visit us on the web at renofmen.com or on your favorite social media platform at Ren of Men. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance.